Hello and welcome back to Trennis Magnus Punches Reality, presented by Two True Freaks. I'm your host, Magnus, and what I do is use every eighth episode of this podcast to talk about Smallville. Now, it was probably about a year and a half or two years ago or something like that, I began yammering about Smallville Phase 2, because if you were so inclined, you could view the first three seasons of Smallville as Phase 1. And Smallville Phase 2 starts with the dreaded fourth season and then goes right on through to the end of the sainted seventh season. And today, I'm continuing my coverage of the sixth season, Smallville's shippiest season. Now, by this point in the show's run, it'd be fair to say that the characters have all covered a lot of ground, especially Clark. In the first season, Clark usually did the right thing at the right time. His instincts and judgment were occasionally a little raw, but they were always flawless. Largely, his conscience led him in the right direction, but in the second season, he sometimes made bonehead decisions. He often struggled against his own fallibility. During the mighty season three, Clark's judgment was as shaky as ever, but for the first time, others were starting to suffer the consequences of his actions. The dreaded season four marked the beginning of Smallville phase two. And while the dreaded fourth season is bad overall, it did showcase Clark's growing sense of independence. Like I said a second ago, he made a lot of mistakes in the second season, and he made more mistakes in the mighty third season. And then he had to live with the consequences of those decisions. So by the time that the dreaded season four got underway, he was finally coming into a stage in life when he'd seen himself at his worst and at his best. He understood that he has to make decisions that literally nobody can. And nobody else is really going to be able to help him either. Not really. And so, for everything else that I could say about the dreaded fourth season, and there's a lot, much of which isn't good, Clark learned that his judgment might be as fallible as anybody else's, but at the end of the day, he's the only one who can make the choices that he has to make. Clark learned in the fifth season that the bad guy isn't always going to wear, he's not always going to go on a tear with superpowers and wreck shop on everybody. Sometimes the bad guy has diplomatic immunity or he teaches history classes in college. And sometimes the bad guy is the CEO of Luther Corp. Good and evil don't always wear easy labels. The bad guys don't always wear black hats and the good guys don't always wear white hats. The fifth season demonstrated that Clark might be getting older, but he's not really growing up. At least, not in the ways that he needs to. He's attached to the life that he's had on the Kent farm. Maybe too attached. And so here, in the sixth season, which is to say Smallville's shippiest season, so far Clark's met Oliver Queen. And this is going to prove to be one of Clark's most important relationships 
on the entire series. Clark had to set all of her straight. If he wants to help people, that's fine, but stealing from others isn't going to fly on Clark's watch. Clark is helping Ollie, but it'd be fair to say that Ollie's going to be helping Clark now and in the future. One of Smallville's most crucial relationships was established in the last batch of episodes that I talked about, but that's not all. <clears throat> in the episode Zod, Clark inadvertently freed several prisoners from the, the Phantom Zone. And in the episode Wither, which again I talked about in the last retrospective, he resolved not to rest until all of the Zoners were put back where they belonged. This is a big step for Clark. In previous seasons, he was mostly reactive to threats. If trouble came knocking, he'd knock back, but mostly he stayed out of the way and minded his own business. But that's starting to change. Here in season six, Smallville should be a season. The subplot about the Zoners is gonna be this shippiest season's story arc, and it's gonna form a major part of Clark's growth and development toward becoming Superman. What we're seeing here in this, in this season is Al Goff and Miles Miller broadening the canvas of the show. They originally only intended Smallville to run for five seasons, so anything more than that would require them to create new stories and uh, devise new relationships and uh, develop new concepts in order to propel the show into whatever the future might bring. It'd be fair to say that the tone of Smallville has shifted dramatically. The first season was relatively grounded and, I might say, relatively realistic, but that's not really the case anymore. Season 2 was slightly more fantasy-oriented. The Mighty Season 3 was even more, slightly more fantasy-oriented. So on and so on and so on. By the time you get to Season 6, Smallville's shippiest season, Goff and Miller were very deep into science fantasy territory. Now, to be fair, not as deep as the show would ultimately go, but for the first time, Smallville was operating in a sense of internal reality where seeing somebody wear a superhero outfit isn't necessarily a strange sight to behold. Part of this shift, as I've alluded to a few times, is movement toward towards more theatrical types of relationships, and boy, are there a lot of relationships to choose from in this shippiest season. You got Lex and Lana, Clark and Lana, Lois and Ollie, Chloe and Jimmy, Martha and Lionel, and others still to come that I don't want to get into because that's a little bit spoilerish. This could, this, this could be, as far as I know, the only season in Smallville's entire run where we can be pretty sure that most of the characters are getting laid on a pretty regular basis. Now, Smallville had always been a teen drama type of show, but this shippy season features tons of ships. There'd never been this many ships going on in the show before, and there never would be again either. We are reaching peak ships here, people. And this dovetails rather nicely with the lighter, more fantasy-oriented tone that the show is pursuing at this stage in the game. And as Smallville seasons go, season six, Smallville's shippiest season, is 
something of a love-it-or-leave-it type of thing. But I think history's been ridiculously kind to this season that we're working through right now. And that's an opinion that I plan to justify as we move along through all these different episodes. But in the here and now, last time I finished up my comments with episode 4, Arrow. And you know what that means. It's time for a break. Be right back to resume the discussion about Smallville Season 6, Smallville Shippius Season, beginning with Episode 5, Reunion, after these messages. everybody, Magnus here. At Trennis Magnus Punches Reality, I talk about comics, movies, and TV shows. But mostly it's comics. And starting in February 2018, I'm launching a mega series that's all about Batman comics. And right now, you're probably saying, but Magnus, but Magnus, does this have anything to do with that new Batman movie that may or may not be coming soon? Why, yes. Yes, it does. I plan to talk about a crapload of Batman comics, and I want you riding along in the Batmobile with me. This is The Caped Crusades, a 24-part mega-series all about Batman comics that have meant a lot to me for a lot of years now. And as I work through all of that, I'll also talk about what I personally consider to be Batman's series finale. All that and more is part of The Caped Crusades, a 24-part Trennis Magnus Punches Reality mega-series. Be there in February 2018. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality can be found at twotruefreaks.com as well as iTunes. back now and continuing my retrospective of this Smallville's sixth season without a doubt this is the shippiest season of Smallville's entire history and we're gonna start getting a pretty decent sample of all that starting in the batch of episodes we're discussing this time around but that's not all that's going on in these shows nope Goth and Miller have a lot to do in all of these episodes 
First, they've got to embellish the Lana Lex romance, and then they've got to better develop Oliver Queen as a character. The season-wide storyline has got to be more firmly established, and Goff and Miller have also got to continue establishing the new rules for this more science-fantasy reality that Smallville takes place in. And not necessarily in that order, either. As I've said before, Smallville's in a period of change right now. Al Goff and Miles Miller designed the show to only last for five seasons. But now that we're in season six, it's obvious that Goff and Miller are working like crazy to evolve the Smallville universe, deepen the characters, and expand the types of stories that they're telling. So this batch of episodes is interesting primarily because of what they say about the new reality that Goff and Miller are working with. And it all starts with Episode 5, Reunion. Lex, Oliver, and their former school buddies are being haunted by another school buddy. The episode starts off with Lex and his friend Duncan talking about Warrior Angel, Smallville's reliable bit of metafiction. Now, apart from adding a literary parallel to Clark and Lex's future relationship, it firmly establishes that, once upon a time, Lex Luthor collected comics. And rather obsessively so, I might add. Now, it's been a while since co Smallville's covered this topic, actually. It's not that it's ignored, you understand. It's just not an element of every single Smallville episode. And Reunion's a good reminder that Warrior Angel is more than just fiction within fiction that some of these fictional characters enjoy. Every single time Warrior Angel pops up in Smallville, there's always a point to it. There's always an idea behind it. But that's not all that happens in the teaser. Oliver Queen's firmly established as a bully. And keep in mind, Green Arrow really isn't a superhero yet. Whatever his destiny might be isn't necessarily completely fixed in people's imaginations yet. I mention this because it's tempting to deduct points from Smallville for fucking up the comics by not immediately portraying Green Arrow as a virtuous hero, but Al Goff and Miles Miller are clearly wanting to keep Oliver and his mission somewhat sketchy at first. In his first appearance back in Sneeze, Oliver kidnapped Lex. In Arrow, Oliver's shown to be a thief. And now here, in Reunion... Young Oliver is shown to be a bully. So, obviously Goff and Miller aren't in some kind of big rush to redeem Oliver, at least just yet. No. That comes later in this episode. Oliver equates himself to Lex in that both of them have a lot to atone for. The difference is that Oliver is trying his damnedest to be a better person, while Lex is perfectly content to walk darker and darker paths. It's poignant because Oliver and Lex both have Excelsior Prep as their common uh, starting point. They're both rich kids. They both attended an elite prep school. They both did things they'd give anything to take back. And they both lost parents at a young age. But Oliver and Lex have chosen very different paths in life. The point here is that Oliver was intentionally given a sketchy past, and really even a sketchy present, to illustrate the fact that even though his methods are pretty
pretty out of whack, he's still making his sincerest effort to make the world a better place. The moral's clear. The things we do in the past don't have to define us for the rest of our lives. We can choose a better path for ourselves. Oliver was given that chance and took it. Lex was given the same choice back in Lexmas from the fifth season and... Well, we all know how that turned out. In other news, Lois has some interesting dialogue here. You need that for your article? Well, it would be good. If I were still going to write one. But you're not? It would make a juicy story for the Inquisitor, but considering the outcome... An exploitation piece on a catatonic patient astral projecting his way to revenge might be in bad taste. Would you still feel the same way if Oliver wasn't involved? We've all done things we're not proud of. I just wish that Oliver didn't feel like he had to hide it from me. You know, sometimes in order to protect the people we love, we keep secrets. That is... Totally retarded. What's interesting here is that isn't that Lois is dropping the story. Although there's that. But it's more that she's not dropping such an insane story because it lacks credibility. More because it's in bad taste. Or possibly because it implicates Oliver in some dirty deeds. This is how much the world's changing in the Smallville universe. Stories like this are still printed in The Inquisitor, which lacks the same journalistic respectability of The Daily Planet. But in this case, it's not about the story's lack of credibility. It's because she doesn't think common decency should allow a story like this to see the light of day. And think about it. How many movies or books or TV shows or, or whatever else have some character summarize the truth of what's just happened and then say they can't tell anybody about it because the rest of the world would think they're crazy. Hell, we saw that very thing right here in Smallville back in Thirst from the fifth season. But that's not happening in Smallville anymore. The crazy, the paranormal, the superhuman, these things are all part of the everyday fabric of life in the Smallville universe at this point. The world is changing more and more all the time. Back in season one, Duncan's story would be suppressed by one or all of the main characters because it's just too unbelievable. In season two, it would have become an urban legend. In the mighty season three, it would have been acknowledged only by the victim's immediate family. In the dreaded season four, it would have been accepted as truth only within Smallville city limits. And at that, only by certain people. But. Now this is part of life in this fictional world. We're getting to the point in Smallville's run now where Duncan's story isn't the strangest, most bizarre news story that anybody's ever heard before. The only reason the story dies here is because Lois thinks it's out of line to publish something like this. Move on to other things, though. As I've said before, talking about acting and whatnot isn't really my thing. But I gotta say that Lucas Grabeel, Grabol, Gravel, however the fuck you pronounce that guy's name, he did a great job of playing young Lex. Partly it's that he's got the acting chops for the role, but partly it's because 
he actually does kind of resemble a young Michael Rosenbaum. Even so, that leads into one of my main gripes about Reunion from back when it first aired. I'd wish that Wayne Dagleish could have come back to play young Lex. He would have been about the right age for it, give or take, and I thought he did such a phenomenal job in Memoria from The Mighty Season 3. But, over time, I've made peace with Lucas Gravel playing the part. Probably it's because, like I said, Gravel did a great job playing the part. Partly it's because, also like I said, he looks like he could be Michael Rosenbaum's little brother. But on another level, it kind of protects Wayne Dagleish's legacy. He only played Le young Lex once, and that was in Memoria. What if he wouldn't have been as good as uh, if he came back for a second, a second time? Well, it's a non-issue now because Smallville's over. So Dagleish's legacy as the best young Lex is untarnished and will forever be so. So as I say, it works on a lot of levels. Still, Gravel has several great moments. During the teaser, young Lex and Duncan got, got jumped by young Oliver and his friends. Lex gets pushed to the ground and his baseball hat falls off, showing his baldness to the world. Now, Gravel takes a second to get his bearings and then he realizes that his hat fell off. His facial expression changes from confusion to complete horror in just a second. He doesn't like anybody seeing his bald head. This is completely humiliating for him. But mixed in there is not just anger or even outrage, but hatred of Oliver and his friends for doing this to him. It's just a brilliant piece of acting on Gravel's part. Now, blink and you miss it but he shows a virtual laundry list of emotions in just a few seconds. So, great job on his part. Other stuff. The ball gets moved forward with this season's main story arc of the escapees that Clark accidentally freed from the Phantom Zone. Chloe discovers that there were other zoners who made it out of the Phantom Zone at the same time that Clark did, and one of them's Raya. Apart from expanding on this subplot, this does two things. First, it establishes that Clark's taking the zoners seriously. He's making a big priority out of searching them out. But we won't find out until later just how seriously he's, ta he's taking all of this and how this re uh, represents a bit of a chance for him and also just how far he's willing to go to bring the zoners down. The other thing, though, is that it sets up Raya's return in the next episode right here in Reunion. Generally, Smallville gets no credit when stories like this are set up in advance. The perception, the abiding perception, is that Smallville introduces and then resolves most standalone stories in that standalone episode, but Reunion shows that's not always the case. This is one of several occasions where the events of a subsequent episode are set up during an earlier one. The last time this happened was Arrow, where it was all but said out loud that Lex and Oliver are pretty much mortal enemies. That wasn't explored until right here, right now, in Reunion. And the end of Reunion is meant to set up Raya's return. 
I say all of that to say that the stereotype of Smallville not building up to these types of stories isn't true at all. It's not completely wrong either, though. As I've said before, Smallville was originally conceived to tell done-in-one stories where Clark takes these gradual sort of baby steps toward becoming Superman. But there came a point in the first season when Goff and Miller realized that that approach wasn't going to work. They made a conscious effort to switch from telling episodic stories to serialized stories. My contention's been that they never really perfected that approach to their stories until the mighty season three, by which time they became very adept at telling a story spread across an entire season. But at the same time, they never completely broke away from the episodic story approach. In this one aspect, Smallville's naysayers, well, they don't have a point because they're wrong. I'm just saying that they're not absolutely wrong. That makes it all the more important to me to point out when Smallville does introduce subplots in one episode and then bring them to uh, fruition later on. It's happened at least once or twice so far this season, and it's going to happen a few more times too before all said and done. Other stuff. Some really solid characterization here. It makes sense that Lex wouldn't miss Alden. But man, is he cold. I heard what happened. Are you all right, son? And I think a little dry cleaning won't cure. That's distasteful, Lex, even for you. What can I say? It's a nice suit. You weren't Alden's close friend, Lex, but still. All right, she muster up some tears anyway. Thanks, but I'll save them for someone who deserves it. I know, I know. Your life at Excelsior wasn't easy. And I know that memories can haunt us. But the best way to deal with them is to leave them behind us. Bury them where they belong. In the past. Along with everything else. Right, Dad? I'm glad you're all right. If you need anything... I won't. Perhaps uh, Miss Lang will have better luck uh, comforting you. Would you give her my regards, please? Also, and this is apropos of absolutely nothing, but it's rare for Lionel to offer some truly good, nurturing advice to Lex that doesn't include some kind of ulterior motive. But that's what happens here. Lionel truly is looking out for Lex. He doesn't like seeing his son in pain and wallowing in misery, so he tries to give him some encouraging words. Going back to Lex, though, it becomes clear that one of Lex's motivations for ever being friends with Duncan in the first place, beyond their common hobbies and interests, is the fact that Duncan's poor. Lex says that Lionel resents poor people. So, 
Befriending Duncan is an interesting form of rebellion for young Lex. That's not the only reason that they hung out, but come on, it had to be a factor. Doesn't last long, though. Eventually, Lex and Duncan have a pretty major falling out. And it comes down to worldview. Basically, Lex and Duncan catch Oliver, Jeffrey, and Alden stealing midterms. Lex wants to use it as blackmail and leverage the bullies, not only to stop acting like dicks, but also to pretend to be Lex and Duncan's friends. Duncan's got a slightly simpler view of the situation, though. The bullies stole the midterm, so they should be handed over to the headmaster. That's enough to end the bullying for good. But Lex has other plans. Lex is an opportunist. He has ideas. And Duncan's getting in the way of all of that, so he beats the shit out of Duncan, who then gets run over by a car. Lex is pretty much re directly responsible for all of this. He did that to the only real friend that he had at school. Now, Smallville's often criticized for light switch character changes. Because of that, the entire point of the very first episode of Trennis Magnus Punches Reality was to defend the show against a lot of unwarranted complaints that people have made. But it was only one episode. There wasn't time to get into everything. Clark becoming a journalist is one thing that people have really picked on over the years. The thinking goes that it just came out of nowhere. There was no build-up to it. But as with so many gripes against Smallville, it just doesn't hold up to scrutiny. I can't talk about all the build-up because parts of it relate to goings-on in and then beyond the sainted seventh season, but I can say that Clark has a history with journalism. Writing was something that held some interest for him back in high school. A lot like Chloe, but to a lesser degree. Also, Clark's very interested in justice, and a crucial part of justice is truth. Clark's very good at searching for the truth, just like Lois is. And as with Lois, the only thing Clark's really not doing that a reporter would do is writing down the truth that he finds. Otherwise, he's basically a reporter right now. Reunion's a good example of Clark doing all the legwork of investigative reporting, but without any of the actual reporting of the facts. Lois leaves a trail of clues for him, Clark hits up Oliver for more details, and then meets with Lionel to get more of the story. From there, he joins forces with Lois so they can get to the bottom of this thing once and for all. Again, the only thing Clark isn't doing here is writing down what he discovers, but this is about the same amount of work that he'd put into a news story in later life. When all said and done, the only thing that's really going to change is that Clark is going to eventually get paid to put all of this shit in writing. Anyway. Fallout, Episode 6. Clark meets up with two Phantom Zone escapees. One's Raya, and the other's a bloodthirsty murderer named Baron. All in all, Fallout's not one of Smallville's most highly regarded episodes. The major gripe against Fallout is the guest star. Baron is played by Bow Wow, a big-name rap guy. 
This is a major problem for Fallout as an episode because apparently TV shows and movies aren't allowed to cast rap performers or something. Now, some people might play the race card here, but instead, I'm gonna play the logic card. What difference does it make what the actor's daytime job is as long as he can play the part? True, I thought Bow Wow was a little awkward at times when he played Lamar, you know, the regular kid, but when he played Baron, I thought he was credible, and as credible as any as any actor that Smallville's ever had, and I dare say probably more credible than some of them. Keep in mind, though, I've got no baggage with Bow Wow either way. I don't really listen to very much rap. I mean, I'm just, I'm not a rap guy at all. Also, I admit that I might very well feel feel differently about all of this if I followed pop culture uh, closer and had to put up with seeing Bow Wow's face on every TV show, magazine cover, and whatever else. But Smallville's literally the only thing that I know him from, so this whole thing just, it's not a problem for me. Anyway, point is that as far as I'm concerned, the criticism about Bow Wow really is grasping at straws. It's made by someone looking to find fault. That's why the haters always bash on this episode. But honestly, what makes Fallout so good? Well, I have to say that one gripe that I do have about Fallout is the establishing shot of Metropolis when Lana meets Dr. Grohl and how that was taken directly from Batman Begins. It's just, it's always bugged me. For some reason, the borrowed footage from Batman and Robin from the episode Zod just isn't really offensive to me at all, but the Batman begin, uh, Begins thing just irks me. I don't know why. But it does, and I don't think we've seen the last of it either. Anyway, deeper themes and implications. Again, we see that Clark has seriously misjudged Jarrell. He and Raya talk uh, quite a bit about uh, Jarrell in the barn, and she paints a very different picture of Jarrell than the dictatorial asshole who's made Clark's life miserable for years now. Why, it's almost enough to make you think that the artificial intelligence Jarrell in the fortress isn't quite the same as the flesh and blood Jarrell from Krypton, but <laughs> that's crazy talk. Also, Clark's foibles and weaknesses really are at issue here. He didn't listen to Jarrell for years, and he's still paying the price for that. But at the same time, Jarrell obviously planned some kind of training for Clark, and this entire time he's completely refused to participate. Hell, he hasn't even made much of an effort to repair the fortress. Which raises the question of just how repentant he is really. But Clark ultimately gets the message. Toward the end of the episode, he determines that it's time to dive headfirst into his training. Implicit in that is a reevaluation of his understanding of Jarrell. But before he can do training or anything, he's got to deal with the zoners. This is Raya's influence mixed with his conversation with Oliver from the end of Arrow, both of which are coming into play here. Clark's got two jobs to do, and for the first time, he's determined to do them both. Another thing is that way back in Relic from the Mighty Season 3, 
Clark wonders aloud if Jonathan and Martha randomly found his ship, like everybody assumed, or if Jarrell intentionally sent Clark to the Kents. Well, Raya outright confirms that there was nothing accidental about Clark's ship being discovered by the Kents. Jarrell actually did send Clark to Martha and Jonathan. Again, this calls some of Jarrell's motivations into question. So far, the Jarrell we've seen in the Fortress of Solitude has been an absolute prick from season two, going through dread the dreaded season four. Now, he's been out of commi commission lately, but during the fifth season, he'd given up trying to push Clark around. But he's never behaved like the man that Raya knew back on Krypton. So, one might ask, what is the difference then between the AI Jarrell and the flesh and blood Jarrell? Those are questions that we're going to have to tackle in the future, but I think it'll ultimately be worth waiting for. Going back to Raya, though. Raya. Hello, Kal-El. I was afraid I'd never see you again. I'm sorry, I didn't want to leave you in the Phantom Zone. You had no choice. It's okay, Kal-El. And if it wasn't for you, I would have never escaped. I would have never seen all this. It's more beautiful than the world your father described. How'd you find me? Your father told me about the family he had chosen for you, about Smallville. Must have been hard growing up here by yourself. I had my parents, I had my friends. But no one who really understood you. You mean, what was it like to grow up with such a big secret? And the amazing rush of racing trains, knowing nothing can hurt you. try to pretend not to notice. But sometimes I would catch my dad watching me when I'd pick something up that was impossible for him to even move. He wanted so much to know what that felt like. But he never could. No matter how I think I fit in, every day I'm reminded I'm not one of them. You're not alone anymore. I'm here. As a rule, Smallville's always played up Clark's conflicts between his desire to be human over and against the reality that he's an alien. He's never been completely comfortable with that. Clark doesn't lament the fact that he has superpowers, per se. He resents the imposition of keeping his abilities a secret from everybody. That has always been the main issue. Now, I don't want to beat this to death, but we have to make it clear that Clark views his secret as what isolates him from others. It's not about his powers and the kryptonite and the talking ice palace. It's about the fact that Clark can't confide in very many people. And the few people he can trust with his secret are always in danger because they know the truth about him. All that has been what's historically pissed Clark off in Smallville. So, to emphasize, Clark's an alien, 
and sometimes he feels alienated. But this doesn't come from his powers. It's because of the way that he has to live his life because he has powers. It's a subtle but important distinction. At the same time, though, that's not really what he and Raya are talking about. She assumes that his powers have alienated Clark from other people. And in the moment, Clark rides with that. Here's somebody he can be pretty open with, but he doesn't have to worry about putting her in danger. And let's face it, right now, Clark's feeling pretty alienated. Lonely, even. Chloe has Jimmy, Lana has Lex, and Lois has Oliver. Right now, Clark's a 20-year-old guy who's not feeling loved and accepted by all that many people right now. He's still suffering over his breakup with Lana. That one hurts. And guys, there's a sense in which I can totally identify with Clark on this one. I remember being 20 years old and always having this uncomfortable look on my face because it felt like my heart had just been stomped on. I remember it pretty clearly because it was one of the absolute low points of my life up to then. And I remember that all I really wanted was someone to talk to. But all my friends and family had their own stuff going on, and most of them were either involved in happy relationships, or else were totally single and had never loved and lost someone. So it felt pretty lonely to go through all that bullshit all on my own. So Clark's reaching out to Raya here, and guys, I totally buy it. It's not all sunshine and roses, though. I wish they could see you now. I haven't been the best son. Your father was hard on himself, too. He felt guilty that he couldn't save Krypton. His only redemption was sending you to save Earth. Save it from what? Extinction. Your civilization is going to destroy itself just like Krypton. You should know this. It was part of your training. I haven't started my training. Now the fortress is damaged. Jarell tried to warn me, but I didn't listen. I mean, how could I trust someone who brought so much pain into my life? Pain is a part of anyone's journey, Kal-El. You can't escape it. You must accept your destiny. This is one of the few times that anybody's gotten specific with Clark about what precisely he's supposed to do. I've mentioned several times before that the AI Jarell wanted Clark to assemble the Stones of Knowledge, undergo his training, topple all earthly governments, set up a benign dictatorship, and then get everybody and everything organized to resist Namek, Aether, Brainiac, Zod, and everything else. But there's another angle to his plan. It was implicit in Jarrell's plan, but here Raya makes it explicit. Yes, Clark was supposed to protect Earth from external threats, but he was also supposed to protect humans from themselves. Clark was supposed to lead the people of Earth away from their own worst instincts lead them to whatever Jarrell thinks is a better way, rather than allow them to continue advancing towards certain self-destruction. Now, to Clark's credit, he's been successful in uniting the Stones of Knowledge and protecting the world, at first, from Namek and Aether, 
back in Arrival from the fifth season, Brainiac all through the fifth season, and then Zod this season. But that's only part of his mandate. The other angle is that Clark has to protect people from themselves, and that has been something Clark's been fundamentally unwilling to do. Biology aside, Clark considers himself human. Jarell expects Clark to take over the world and protect humanity from itself, even though he personally identifies with humanity. It's contradictory, and this is the crucial issue that Clark's got to overcome. He cannot fulfill his destiny until he makes peace with himself, and he's got a lot of barriers to overcome before that's even possible. But the point here is that here in the sixth season, we're finally getting down to brass tacks as far as Clark's main foibles and shortcomings. By itself, most of this isn't new information. It's been true of Clark all through Smallville's run, but here's the first time we learn that Clark's core personality and characteristics are ultimately holding him back from achieving his destiny. I mean, who doesn't want to go save the world, right? But the thing is, is that if you have lost all faith in yourself and your judgment, you'd be a fool to try to impose your will on others. This isn't Clark being modest or falsely humble. He's seen up close and personal just how fucking bad things can get if he makes the wrong decisions. He's unwilling to roll the dice when the whole world hangs in the balance. Clark knows damn good and well what the stakes are. He just doesn't believe that he's got the ability to be the leader that Jarrell wants him to be. So in a certain sense, Clark's showing amazing wisdom by turning his back on world power. But the fact is that the Earth needs someone to save it, and Clark may not have a choice about being nominated for the job. Clark's decision-making processes in all of this are all motivated by fear, pain, and loss within the context of rejecting his true heritage. Until Clark overcomes these issues, until he finds a way to make peace with himself and his background, he's never going to be what Jarrell wants him to be. And understand, what Jarrell, what Jarrell's talking about here is Clark serving basically as a benevolent dictator. We know that Clark will ultimately become Superman, who's not a dictator of any kind, benevolent or otherwise. So, even when Clark does overcome his problems, he's still fulfilling his destiny on his own terms. I'll talk more about that much later on, though. In fact, there's an interesting point counterpoint that's going on here. Clark's mission, given to him by his father, is to save the world, but short of drawing pictures, I've done everything I can to explain why it is that Clark isn't willing to do that right now. At least, not on Jarrell's terms. But as all that's going on, we see Lex's latest project to save the world get underway. Nobody's assigned this to Lex. There's no floating spaceship or ice palace or burning bush telling, them, telling him that he's got to save everybody. But Lex is taking the task on himself anyway. Clark's rejecting the job of mankind's rescuer, even though just about everybody thinks he'd do fine with it. Meanwhile, you've also got Lex attempting to claim a monopoly on that very job 
while he pursues greater and greater power. Based primarily on a false sense of his own incorruptibility. In fact, that's another point counterpoint. Clark believes he's unworthy to be a hero and a champion, in spite of the millions of lies he's, that he saved just in the two most recent season premieres and season finales. Lex believes himself to be worthy of those same things, in spite of all evidence to the contrary. There's something else, though, and it's kind of unpleasant to talk about, but intellectual honesty demands that I talk about it anyway. See, I've been a major defender of Smallville's continuity. People with an agenda to bash on the show for whatever reason tend to focus a lot of their gripes on Smallville's continuity. The perceptions become that Smallville has some really lousy continuity and that nothing ever flows together. My hope is that I've shown those willing to listen that the haters are mostly wrong. But, once in a while... Well, when I was talking about Arrow last time, what I said was... And speaking of the disc fragment... Basically, what we're talking about here is a very dangerous piece of technology that Zod used while he possessed Lex's body. Now, at first, it's a little bit of a MacGuffin, like the Letters of Transit in Casablanca or the Briefcase in Pulp Fiction. It's not really important unto itself. It's really just a tool used to motivate characters and drive the plot. I say that because Lex's agenda here is to use this black box to build some kind of way to defend the world the next time that some pissed off Kryptonians come knocking. Lana encourages Lex to keep working on it. I'm mentioning this because it isn't small potatoes, but for once, this really is not leading in a very positive direction. I'll talk more about Lex's project with the black box later. And I expect I'm probably going to have fewer positive things to say, but I guess we'll have to wait and see. Well, here we are. Lana told Lex to keep working on the black box back in Arrow. It could be the only way to defend the world in the future, after all. But here in Fallout, for no apparent reason, Lana's taken a very different view. She sees the black box as dangerous and gives Lex an ultimatum. He has to choose between the black box and her. Now, Baron ends up absorbing the energy of the black box, so we don't know what Lex would have chosen. But that's not the point. The point is that people bitch and complain all the time about Smallville supposedly having shitty continuity. And most of the time, it's just not true. But this time it is. Nobody paid attention to this, and it's kind of a big deal. There's a major gap in Lana's motivations. She has no reason to do such a drastic about-face on all of this. At least, we're not given a reason for why she'd change her mind. So, it really is a light switch change. In Arrow, Lana supported Lex researching the the black box. Here in Fallout, Lana opposes it. No real explanation is given for that. She just opposes it now. 
And it pisses me off because this is one of the very few times when the continuity whiners have legitimate ammo on their side. They've got a leg to stand on here. That's not to say there aren't any silver linings with Lana and Fallout, though. For the very first time, Lana has reason to question her decision to be with Lex. In spite of the continuity fuck-up I just mentioned, Lana's been given her first major reason to not trust Lex. Not much comes of it just yet, but the seeds are planted right here in Fallout, the sixth episode this season. In fact, you could argue that Lex knows exactly what Lana's thinking, and that's what motivates him to take a very drastic action, but I'll talk more about that later. Other stuff. In Fallout, Jimmy takes pictures of Lana meeting with Dr. Grohl. He mistakes her for Lex, though, because all he can see is Lex's limo. He suggests partnering with Chloe on this. His pictures, her words. A Pulitzer Prize is inevitable. It's passing dialogue, and the idea is to set up other things. Still, Jimmy knows his limitations. He's a photographer. He needs a writer to partner with if he's going to get anywhere in this business, and he wants to get somewhere because he wants to be somebody. I say all of that to say this. It's Chloe in this episode, but Jimmy will approach other people in the future with a similar offer. The episode ends with Clark ma making ma two major promises. First, he's going to hunt down every single last one of the zoners. He's responsible for them escaping the Phantom Zone, so his self-appointed task will be to put them back where they belong. This is huge. Up to this point, in Smallville, Clark's always been a very reactive character. He doesn't go looking for trouble. But when trouble comes knocking, he does some knocking of his own. This is the first time Clark's made the decision to be proactive about something. He's seen what can happen when he ignores problems and lets them fester. He won't allow that to happen with the zoners. He's going to track them down one by one and send them all back to the Phantom Zone. This is a brand new policy for Clark, and I think it's motivated primarily by ignoring Jarrell's warnings all through the second through dreaded fourth seasons, playing roulette with Jonathan Kent's life, and maybe a lecture or two from Oliver Queen about broadening his view of the world's problems. That's number one. And it'll be season six's main arc. But number two, once he's settled all family business with the zoners, he'll be off to the Arctic to train with Jarrell. No more running, no more fear, no more excuses. Clark's come to a pretty different view of Jarrell, thanks in no small part to Raya. And also thanks to Raya, Clark's starting to think maybe the Kryptonian race ain't all bad. That's all some pretty important stuff, and again, it's totally foreign to Clark's thinking during seasons one through five. But considering everything that he's been through lately, it actually makes a lot of sense for Clark to want to track down all the zoners and then give Jarrell another chance and undergo his training. As you might remember, I asked a while ago just what makes Fallout so good. Well, there you go. 
I don't see why I should ignore all the amazing character advancement that Fallout brings just because some asshole out there doesn't think Bow Wow is a very good actor. So, honestly, what makes Fallout so good? Well, I've spent, what, three years now explaining how awesome this episode is? I don't see why I should leave this episode's badassitude on the table just because some dickhead out there doesn't like the fact that Bow Wow is the guest star. Episode 7. Rage. <sighs> Clark and Chloe discover green arrows using a drug that has miraculous healing effects, but also makes them act like a complete dick wipe. This is another character out of character episode. Kook for short. Even so, the summary alone is rife with deeper themes and implications. Understand, Oliver became the Green Arrow to rob rich thieves blind, sell the goods, and then donate his ill-gotten gains to charity. Clark forced him into retirement there, so instead, Oliver became a superhero to fight criminals directly. Maybe it's because he invested money in leather hoodies and collapsible bows, but Maybe it's because he wants to do something to make the world a better place. The episode begins by showing us what a typical night for Green Arrow is probably like. Until he gets shot, that is. Understand, Oliver is really no more practiced at being a superhero than Clark is. Not really. Ten years from now, it probably won't be possible for some random street thug to get the drop on Green Arrow. But this isn't 10 years in the future. It's right now. And right now, Green Arrow still sometimes lets his guard down. And at the beginning of Rage, he pays a very high price for that. Oliver's trying his best to learn how to be a costumed vigilante. He doesn't have Clark's superpowers, or for that matter, Clark's years of experience going for him. All he has is an ideal that he's trying his best to live up to. It makes sense that Oliver would want some kind of dividend to make sure that he lives to patrol another night. It's logical for Oliver, who's still very new to this, to turn, some, to, turn, to, turn to some kind of wonder drug to treat his injuries. He has a mission, and no two-bit loser with a gun is going to stand in his way. Clark's somewhat oblivious to this because he's rarely lived in a truly mortal world. Yes, there have been times when he's lost his powers, but it's rare for him to truly face mortal peril. He can't completely relate to Oliver's point of view in this. Another angle is Oliver biting Clark's head off about not being more proactive about helping people. And to a degree, Oliver's got a point. He risks his life every time he puts on his green arrow gear, while Clark does chores on the farm and lusts over Lana. Now, yeah, we viewers know that Clark's been a lot busier than that, especially lately, but number one, Oliver doesn't necessarily know that. And number two, Oliver is absolutely not in his right mind at the moment. In other news, Lana randomly passes out when she visits Chloe at the Daily Planet. I guess that's better than morning sickness. Uh, wait, what? What did I say? Anyway, Lana's still stewing about it when Clark drops by the mansion later, looking for Lex. Lana's not much for conversation here, though. 
Now, in case it wasn't clear, different people get different things out of entertainment. Smallville's no different. I'm a writing guy. I like the conflicts and the themes and the character arcs and the myth, but a lot of people out there dig the emotion of things. I've always been a little meh about that. I mean, to me, emotional stuff is never too far away from melodrama. That's why I usually don't dwell on the emotional core of a lot of this stuff. Maybe I'd feel different about it under other circumstances, but at the end of the day, I like the myth Smallville explores rather than the emotional tidal waves. But it's a pretty emotional scene there in the library between Clark and Lana. Sometimes in life, you just can't communicate with the people that you love the most. There's just too much bullshit between the two of you. It's just too hard to open up sometimes, especially when you're still aching from the last time that they hurt you. What I'm saying here is that for once, I actually did connect with the emotion of the scene. Something else here is that Martha and Lionel almost kiss. This is a big step for Martha, and I think it's about the closest Lionel ever gets to seeing Martha without her pants on. But it's significant, first, because they did almost kiss, and second, she finally admits that there's a part of her that, that would really be into it. Now, she's still a widow, and nothing can change the fact that she's a widow, and her being a widow is a pretty recent thing. And even if it wasn't, Who's to say she'd ever be ready to date Lionel? But at the same time, that doesn't mean that she's not into Lionel. She just isn't ready to let him be into her. If you catch my meaning. But all in all, this is a pretty big step for both of them. Lionel expresses genuine remorse for almost making a move on her. Back in the fifth season, he tried to charm his way right into her panties. But here, he truly regrets his actions. It's, it's just interesting. That's all I'm saying. All in all, Rage is a pretty good episode. Best episode that Smallville's ever had? No. But it does a masterful job of reinforcing the new status quo for all the characters. Chloe is Jimmy. Lois is Oliver. Clark is developing a sharper sense of responsibility. Oliver's working on becoming a real superhero. Lana's got some, some major spoiler that she's sitting on. And Lex may or may not be a murderer. Standalone episodes like Rage are important for setting the tone of a season. Or maybe just reflecting it, depending on when it aired. But in the case of Rage, it gives us a taste of a lot of the character arcs that are coming this season. Maybe not the wider plot of the season, but you still get a very good idea of where the characters are headed this year. That's one of the many strengths of standalone episodes, and it's why I refuse to use that douchebag hipster term called filler. Okay, so, the Thanksgiving scene. Honestly, I don't get why people are so bothered by this. Maybe that's a reflection of just how dysfunctional my family truly is, but 
honestly, the group of people sitting at that table to varying degrees are the orphaned and the widowed. And they're all learning that sometimes you don't get to have much blood family. So you make the best of what family you can have. On that basis, it's completely logical that Chloe would sit next to Lionel. Now, yes, 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 right now you're probably thinking that Lionel blew up Chloe's safe house real good back in Covenant from the Mighty Season 3. And you probably think you're clever for pointing that out. Except, Lionel didn't blow up Chloe's safe house. Sure, Lionel made her life hell. He blackmailed her, he threatened her, he blacklisted her dad, tons of other things. But he's been known to have become a changed man since then. He's helped Martha whenever he can. He's gone far out of his way to protect Clark's secret. He's even taken sides against his own son on a few occasions. And he even risked his life to help Chloe during Dark Thursday. All that, and he didn't blow up her safe house back in Covenant from the Mighty Season 3. What? No clever remark? Oi. Look, if I seem a little defensive here, it's because we're now fully into the era where it was fashionable to bash on Smallville. So this specific scene gets picked on a lot, and like so much with Smallville, it gets kicked around for flaws it doesn't have. People are projecting something onto this that just doesn't exist. Besides all that, Lionel only attends the party as Martha's guest. Yeah, it's great that the other characters accept him, but he's Martha's guest. Lois doesn't have the same history with Lionel that pretty much everyone else at the table does. Clark's got a lot of reasons to trust Lionel right now. Or at least accept him. Oliver's still in the doghouse with Lois, so the last thing he'll want to do is shoot his mouth off to Lionel during something as important as Thanksgiving. And like I said, Chloe has a very good insight into Lionel's transformation. Plus, also like I said, he saved her life back in Vessel. Or tried to, anyway. All in all, nobody has any reason to start some shit in the middle of Thanksgiving dinner. Moving right along, Static, Episode 8. Clark takes a trip to Seattle to kick some zoner ass, but there are several nasty surprises waiting for him. Plus, a metahuman drops in on Luther Mansion, wanting revenge for, get this, being experimented upon. There's a lot of shit going on here. One of the most obvious things is Clark deciding to pay a visit to Seattle in search of Aldar, another escapee from the Phantom Zone. Just as he's about to head out the door, word comes down the pipeline that Lex has literally vanished into thin air. Clark decides to stay the course and go to Seattle anyway. It's a big step for Clark. Superman has to prioritize. Whatever's happened to Lex, it's a missing persons case. The police can handle that, at least for right now, but only Clark can handle goings-on in Seattle with the zoner. It's a strategic decision, a judgment call, and Clark makes it in a split second. Understand, Clark and Lex aren't on such great terms right now, but at the same time, it's not like Clark wants to see him get hurt. And then there's Lana to think about. 
Whatever this latest bullshit Lex has gotten himself mixed up in could endanger her too. All of those would be understandable reasons for Clark to stay in Smallville, at least for the time being. But he doesn't. He just got a hot tip about another Phantom, and so he's off to take, uh, to take him out of action. Superman has to make decisions like this all the time. And he has to make them in a split second. And that's what Clark does here. For now, he decides to let the law handle whatever's going on with Lex while he invests his time and his effort in tracking down the zoner. A few times this season, Oliver's pissed in Clark's cereal about mostly using his powers to either protect himself or to protect his loved ones. And the thing is that Oliver's not entirely right about that. But he's not completely wrong either. The fact is that Clark usually doesn't go looking for trouble to save people from. He helps when he can, but he doesn't actively search for problems. And his mission to bring down all the zoners isn't really a repudiation of that either. Instead, it's Clark realizing that he had a hand in those psychos ever escaping the Phantom Zone to begin with, so it's his job to put things right. Whether he intended to or not, he made this mess, so he considers it his business to clean it up. So Clark's gonna, going to Seattle to look for his new zoner? Damn the consequences. And here's the thing. Clark's right to do this. Chloe, Lana, and Jimmy ultimately come to the rescue for Lex, while Clark not only protects people from the Phantom, but also finds out about somebody else who seems to be hunting the Phantom's owners too. The character is implied to be Martian Manhunter. This is big. We'll be seeing him again very soon. In other Seattle stuff, Clark first pretends to be the first year med student the coroner was waiting for, and then later a cop. He doesn't have a secret identity to fall back on. Superman could probably show up to a place like that and get answers, but Clark doesn't have any kind of alternate identity right now, so he's gotta make do with what he has. Also, Clark's battle with Aldar really isn't much of a battle, but what can you do? I mean, it's, hard, it's, it's pretty hard to top Zod as far as ass-kickings go. But then, Clark wasn't really trying to fight Zod. He was biding his time until he could trap him. Big difference. So the fight, quote-unquote, with Zod was really just a fight in name only. Clark had a strategic objective to accomplish, and accomplish it, he did. But accomplishing it meant letting Zod kick his ass around for a little while. Aldar's different. Or would have been, anyway, if not for Martian Manhunter bailing Clark out at the last minute. Here we see Clark going up against someone who can take pretty much anything that Clark chooses to dish out. Now, Clark's grown a lot since the pilot. Back then, his face-off with Jeremy Creek only lasted as long as it did because Clark had no real mastery over his powers. He couldn't take the chance of really hurting or even killing Jeremy. Because of that... The battle in the pilot was a lot more awkward, clumsy, and longer than it really should have been. But ever since that time, Clark's fought a lot of superpowered opponents. Each time, he refines his techniques. And it's interesting that when Clark tries to use his fists and raw firepower to settle problems like he did with Cre Tina Greer back in Visage, or with the jocks back in Witness, both from Season 2, 
versus when he chooses to fight smarter, not harder, like he did uh, in the episode Zod from earlier this season. But Aldar is a whole new level of intensity. If Martian Manhunter hadn't gotten involved, there's no telling what might have happened since Aldar isn't really a phantom. The crystal didn't work against him. So, what would Clark have to do to take Aldar out? Tough to say. Since we're talking about Aldar here, may as well talk about the casting decision. The Zoners, by virtue of who they are, lend themselves to stunt casting. Goff and Miller were quick to recognize that, too. Sure, Gloria wasn't portrayed by some superstar, but here in Static, Aldar is played by Batista, the wrestling dude. As with Bow Wow back in Fallout, some people are royally pissed off about this casting choice, but I don't really follow rap music, so I've got no real investment in Bow Wow, apart from the one time that he played Baron. And I don't watch wrestling, so I had no idea who Batista Batista was outside of Aldar here in Static. To me, though, it's perfectly logical to cast wrestlers for one-off characters like this. I'll have more to say about this later on, but for right now, I think it's worth saying that wrestlers already have some understanding of acting, and all of them understand stunts, stage fighting, and all that other stuff. The bottom line here is that if you have a superhero show with lots of action and fights and stunts and shit, you could do worse than cast B-list wrestlers as your guest stars. Apart from the crossover appeal to the wrestling fan base, you get people who probably know even more about stunts and movie fighting than you do on set. It's a good match. No, Batista isn't exactly Anthony Hopkins. His performance is a little cheesy, but he brings real physicality to the role. And let's not overlook the obvious. Tom Welling is a big bastard. Guy's like 6'4 and 230-something pounds. I mean, he's a huge son of a bitch. And there just aren't very many people out there who are bigger than he is. And of all the people who are bigger than Tom Welling, most of them aren't actors. Honestly, Goff and Miller made the right choice by casting wrestlers in some of these roles. Other stuff. There are dual A-plots going on here in Static. As I've discussed at length, there's Clark's little trip to Seattle, but there's also Lex getting kidnapped by Bronson. This second A-plot mostly serves to bring level 33.1 out in the open. The last time we saw anything about 33.1 was way back in Jinx from the dreaded fourth season when uh, Lex took Mikhail Mix's Pitalik there. Now, normally I don't cover stuff outside the series proper. That's why you haven't heard me talk much about the Chloe Chronicles or the Vengeance Chronicles. That'll probably change somewhat this season, though, for reasons that have to do with big doings coming much later on. Still, it's worth mentioning that the uh, Vengeance Chronicles addressed bits and pieces of 33.1. And now, 33.1's back, right here in Static. Huge shit comes out of this. 33.1 is not an incidental plot point. A lot of stuff comes from this. But by itself, 33.1 is a reflection of where we are in Smallville's run. But I'll tackle more of 33.1 in the future. 
it's never specifically addressed what 33.1 is right here in static, but a lot gets implied. It'll come up again in the future. Level 33.1 is a secret uh, floor in Luther Corp Tower where Lex stores, studies, and experiments upon metahumans. It's part of a high-level research project for Lex to figure out exactly what it is that kryptonite does to people, how it affects them, and that sort of thing. This is huge for the Smallville universe. Way back in Extinction from the Mighty Season 3, Lex was on the record as being a bit of a skeptic about people regularly uh, obtaining superhuman powers from meteor rocks. It was breaking news to him that those people even exist in significant numbers. And even more so that he might even have been meteor infected himself. That was then. This is now. And now, here in the sixth season, meteor freaks are just this side of mainstream. Not quite there yet, but they're just about ready for prime time. They're well enough known now, not only for Lex Luthor to want to study and experiment upon him, but for Lex to have access to enough specialists to staff a special department inside of Luthor Corp in order to do the job. Back in the first season, this would have been unheard of to and unthinkable for most people. But now it's almost mainstream. That's how much things have changed in the Smallville world over the seasons. It's been such a gradual change that you might not even notice it if you're not paying close attention. It's interesting how each of uh, the characters react to rumors of 33.1's existence. Lionel wants in on 33.1 for a lot of reasons. Number one, it's part of the power games between him and Lex. But number two, 33.1 is a potential threat to Clark. It's also a potential mess for Clark to clean up at some point. If Lionel's involved in 33.1, he'll be in a good position to help Clark out if, God forbid, disaster strikes. This speaks to Lionel's evolving role on Smallville. In the first season, Lionel was a morally gray businessman with questionable parenting tactics. In the mighty third season, Lionel was all but the Antichrist. But ever since the fifth season, Lionel's become more and more an ally for Clark. And understand that Lionel hasn't necessarily lost all of his gray morality. He simply uses it to further Clark's cause when he can. To him, it means absolutely nothing to be involved with sketchy moral and ethical enterprises like 33.1 because Lionel's eyes are on a much different prize. Chloe can't quite go there, though. All she sees is the threat 33.1 could pose to everyone, as well as the uncountable number of human and civil rights issues that are at stake. The bottom line for Chloe is that if 33.1 exists, any rational, thinking person would have to shut it down as quickly as possible. In public, Lana refuses to even consider the possibility that 33.1 could have been real. And, in her defense, she's got emotional bullshit like her blessed event and her relationship with Lex blinding her. She's been through a lot here in Static, so it's perfectly logical for her to reject any possibility that Bronson was telling the truth about 33.1. That's all in public, though. 
in private, she tells Lex that if 33.1 exists, she'd understand. And she probably would. Number one, she has no idea what might be going on there. But number two, how many kryptonite freaks has Lana had to put up with over the years? There's a clear link between meteor rocks, superhuman powers, and absolute insanity. She's not out of line in seeing the upsides of 33.1, given what she has to work with. Speaking of Lana, Static ends with Lex proposing. What will be Lana's answer, do you think? So, Lana says she's all pregnant and shit now. Speaking of not covering things outside the series proper, I haven't really talked a, a whole lot about the cast and, and uh, crew's personal lives. Mostly it's because I just, honestly, I really don't care who they are as people. I only really care about how they do their jobs. Because of that, I just don't know anything about most of them outside of Smallville, because I've never bothered to find out. So I really don't have anything to say about that stuff because I just, I don't know anything. But one thing that most people seem to understand is that Tom Welling isn't really a celebrity in terms of soaking up the fame and the attention. Word around the water cooler is he's kind of shy and introverted. Because of that, he's never really felt comfortable doing press junkets, going to movie premieres and doing shit like that. But when you're part of a TV show that needs to get attention from the media, you do what you gotta do. So there was a point when, whatever his personal preferences might have been, Welling was sort of a regular fixture for media appearances and interviews and things like that. He was a popular choice for this sort of thing because, let's face it, he's a good looking dude. But there came a point when Welling totally went off the grid. No more media appearances, no more interviews, nothing. He was just gone. A lot of people speculate that this little nugget here could be why. Meanwhile, Smallville fans, how's this for a juicy little tease courtesy of Tom Welling? Clark doesn't have Lana anymore. She's with Lex and, um, you know, there might be a little Bambino on the way, so that'll change things up. Basically, Welling revealed a major spoiler that Goff and Miller might have wanted to keep quiet. Yes. I well understand that Goff himself is the source for too many spoilers to ever count, and I know that beyond any shadow of a doubt. A good number of leaks that appeared on a certain very prolific Superman and Smallville fan site came from Al Goff directly. But there's a routine for this sort of thing. Or there used to be, anyway. Entertainment Weekly gets a few scoops, TV Guide gets a few scoops, the online fan sites get a few scoops, and all that. Everybody gets something. The thinking goes that Welling spoke way out of turn, and so he was pre prevented from giving interviews like this in the future. I've even read some people speculate that he did this on purpose to leverage getting out of doing press and interview bullshit so that he could live a quieter life. Here's the thing. I have no idea if any of that's true, but it is interesting that it'd be years. Years before Tom Welling would grant anybody another interview. And even then, there are clear and obvious reasons why he'd have no choice about doing press once again later on down the line. No matter how you look at it, though, 
Welling blew a major spoiler away to, to the national entertainment media that he clearly wasn't supposed to. I didn't talk about this sooner because I usually try not to spoil what's coming. So to talk about this interview any sooner than now would have been a bad idea. But here it is. Now, like I said, I don't care about the cast and crew's personal lives, but I wanted to get this out there so that I'd stop getting Facebook messages about it. So all of you waiting for me to talk about this, here you go. So I think that just about does it this time out. The way things are right now, I'll have another four episodes to talk about season six. It might turn into another five episodes, though, depending on how things shape up. It's just tough to say right now. But it'll be either four or five episodes. So something to look forward to, yes? It's weird because it's easy for me to forget about how much I enjoy the sixth season. I, I was surprised to discover how enjoyable season five was. I'm, don't get me wrong. But so far, the sixth season's been really good. It's strange what appeals to you over time. When the fifth and sixth seasons first aired, I still had one hell of a chip on my shoulder about the dreaded season four, how awful it was, and just how fucking betrayed I felt by it. And that lasted for a pretty long time, too. It really colored my opinions of the fifth and sixth seasons when they first aired. But coming back to those seasons now as part of this retrospective, it's amazing how enjoyable they've been. It just it reinforces my idea that some shows really do work best in condensed marathons rather than periodic television broadcasts. Of course, that highlighted the total contradiction in Lana's attitude about the black box here in this bat batch of episodes. But by and large, this show works best in marathons more than spaced apart viewings. As I've said before, I consider seasons five through Sainted Seven to be Smallville's cinematic prime. The show had never looked this good before, and it mostly would never look this good again. It's weird because this is the same period when a lot of people think uh, the bottom fell out for Smallville, and it never truly recovered. Or if it did, it wasn't until near season 8 or 9. I just can't relate to that. The dreaded season 4 is where Smallville ran up, went off the rails. The fifth season is where things got put back in order, at least somewhat. And I'm never going to believe otherwise. I'll sure as shit never say otherwise. And in fact, as I move through all of these seasons, what I've come to realize is this is the era that I've really wanted to talk about. Seasons five through Sainted Seven are just so fascinating to me on plot and character levels. I just, I love talking about this stuff. I mean, I'm happy, I'm, I'm, I'm content, I'm excited. I can't wait to get to it sometimes. In fact, I'd be lying if I said I haven't noticed that I seem to have more to say about these seasons than I did seasons one through Dreaded Four. I mean, yeah, there were some long season, uh, Dreaded Season Four related episodes, but those mostly related to how pissed off I was. The era of the show that I'm dealing with now is a lot different. Anyway, really hope that comes across to you guys who are listening to all of this. My biggest wish is that you're all enjoying these episodes of the show and this re retrospective series that I'm going through as much as I am. But that's it for this time. Next time, we're going to be discussing Subterranean, Hydro, and Justice. Bye, everybody. I'll see you then.
After the theatrical cartoons, after the movie serials, a new medium helped define an icon for generations to come. The Adventures of Superman! Join Mike Zumo as the Man of Screen podcast enters the next phase with a year-long look at the 1950s television series The Adventures of Superman, starring George Reeves as Clark Kent and Superman. No comment until the time limit is up. Phyllis Coates as Lois Lane during Season 1. What are you afraid of? What are you hiding? And Noel Neal as Lois Lane starting in Season 2. Why did you wait? Jack Larson as Jimmy Olsen. Mr. Kent is Superman. John Hamilton as Perry White. Don't call me Chief! And Robert Shane as Inspector Henderson. I don't want excuses, I want action! So, follow along Mike and some possible guest hosts for an in-depth analysis of The Adventures of Superman, starting in June at supermanpodcastnetwork.com and manofscreen.podomatic.com. This is a job for Superman. I mean, I've got to find it. Okay, so I think that's just about the end of that. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a proud member of the Two True Freaks podcast network you can find the home for trentus magnus punches reality on facebook just by searching for trentus magnus punches reality there you can interact with your fellow listeners and also see notifications of new episodes when i put them up you can friend me on facebook just by searching for trentus magnus which is spelled t-r-e-n-t-u-s-m-a-g-n-u-s you can email me and my parole officer at trennismagnus at gmail.com. Do you have a suggestion for a topic? Feel free to email me, and I might consider thinking about the possibility of potentially discussing whatever you have in mind someday. And that's a promise. Do you have a podcast of your own? If so, why not record a promo for me to play on my show? It's quick, easy, and can help you spread the word about your show. I'm always looking for more promos to play. Keep it fairly short, and yours could be next. My promos can be found at this show's homepage for those interested. Just look for the promos section. Visit our website at twotruefreaks.com. Two True Freaks is always spelled T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S. If you shop at Amazon.com, please consider using the link at 2TrueFreaks.com to shop there. If you use this link to go to Amazon and then you shop, 2TrueFreaks gets a little cut of what you buy and it doesn't cost you anything extra. So you get to shop as usual and help out the 2TrueFreaks at the same time. 2TrueFreaks and all of its excellent affiliates are available on iTunes, and you can choose to subscribe to either the entire network if you wish, or pick whichever individual shows you want to follow. We have so many shows to choose from, there's just bound to be one that appeals to your particular fandom. Just search 2TrueFreaks with an exclamation mark at the end, space, and the number 2. If you ever leave your house and you actually have friends, why don't you tell them about 2TrueFreaks? If you've enjoyed our show, 
please, won't you take a moment to rate us on iTunes? That helps others find the show, too. The contents of this podcast are fictitious, hypothetical, and probably completely unnecessary. Any similarity to living persons or real-life events is purely coincidental and void where prohibited by law, some assembly required, batteries not included. The white zone is for passenger loading and unloading only. All models are over the age of 18. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a Magnus Media Enterprises Limited production in association with DeMonzacore of Milan, Italy.